0: Hello and welcome to episode number sixty-six of the Agro Innovations podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com/podcast, on Monday, October fifth, two thousand nine. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. I will not have a guest as I usually do. Instead, I will be talking with the audience about Peak Wood, which is a subject that I am interested in. There's a great book that I will be drawing on quite heavily for this episode of the podcast. It is called A Forest Journey, The Role of Wood in the Development of Civilization by John Perlin. Now, I've I've tried in the past to tap John Perlin for an interview on this podcast, but I got no response, and I just feel that the... Topics covered in John Perlin's book are so relevant, so important, and so interesting that they are worth covering whether John is participating in the podcast or not. So, after some deliberation on how to do that, I figured that perhaps the best way would be to just go through some of the more salient points of the book and discuss the implications of Peak Wood with the, po- the audience of the Agro Innovations podcast. So before I do that, let me let the audience know a couple of things. One is that I made a brief appearance on the Kunstler cast, uh, which is a weekly conversation about the tragic comedy of suburban sprawl uh, with James Howard Kunstler and Duncan Crary. And I began the Kunstler cast by asking Jim Kunstler a question about the role of food in World Made by Hand. Now, again, that was in last week's episode of The Kunstler Cast, and I will link to that because my question tipped off a very thought-provoking conversation between Duncan and Jim about food, uh, about the role of food in his novel, World Made by Hand. And if you have not read that book, it's it's a really good book, so I suggest that you do read it. Uh, It does give a portrait of what the future could potentially bring in a petroleum-scarce society. And naturally, in such a society, people are forced to reinvent their relationship with food, especially relative to our current relationship with food, which I would describe as somewhat dysfunctional in general, um, not across the board. Many people have a healthy relationship with food. But as a society and a culture, our relationship with food is somewhat dysfunctional and Obviously, heavily reliant on fossil fuels. So, in the absence of fossil fuels, Jim Kunstler put a lot of thought into what our society and our relationship to food might look like. And they talk about this extensively in this episode of the Kunstler cast. So, I will link to that on the show notes for this episode and you can go listen to that. And that episode of the Kunstler cast was sponsored by the Agro Innovations podcast. And I should say that Duncan Crary is a great media consultant. So if you need someone to do uh, some public relations and some press releases, Duncan Crary is, is a great person to do that. I have had the good fortune of working a little bit with Duncan on that and I was very pleased with the results thus far. And I think that if you are someone who has a business or a product or service or an organization that is doing outreach with the press and would like to do so more effectively, or if you are not doing outreach with the press, you probably need to be doing so, and Duncan is a great person to get in touch with on that, and his uh, rates are very reasonable. Also, I will be appearing on this week's episode of the Sea Realm Podcast with KMO and Neil Kramer. And we will be talking about the subject of sacred geometry. And Camo is another person who I would just like to voice wholehearted support for, for the great work that he does on the Sea Realm podcast, uh, churning podcast after podcast out week after week, really without interruption, which is really quite a feat considering Camo has a job and, and has a family and yet he manages to churn these podcasts out on a regular basis, and it's quite impressive, and, and the co- quality of the content on the Sea Realm podcast is really quite impressive as well. So if you would like to hear me talk about some topics that I don't generally tend to talk about on the Aero Innovations podcast, then head on over to this week's episode of the Sea Realm, and you can get uh, a taste of what sacred geometry is about, mandalas, fractals, and there is there even is some uh, talk of permaculture. One other administrative item that I would like to mention to our listeners is that I've just recently started a permaculture meetup group here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, I will link to the meetup group page to that via the show notes for this episode of the podcast also. And If you are interested in permaculture, and and the real idea of this is to really make this meetup groups a place where we can share technologies, uh, maybe kind of a little bit of a hacker space where we can perhaps play around with the rip rep technology or some appropriate technologies for urban gardening and suburban gardening, suburban permaculture, uh, talk about things like mushroom production, and even perhaps build some the basis for some viable business models in and around our community. I'd really like to see some entrepreneurship come out of the permaculture meetup group that I am organizing, and that is probably far off into the future, but uh, we have to start somewhere on this. So if you are in the Albuquerque, New Mexico area, and you are interested in participating in this permaculture meetup group then please do so. Uh, Please become a member of the group and look out for those meetups and please participate. So let me begin my discussion of John Perline's book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Wood in the Development of Civilization, by talking exactly about that. On page 26, uh, John Perline talks about the importance of wood. It may seem bold to assert wood's crucial place in the evolution of civilization. But consider, throughout the ages, trees have provided the material to make fire, the heat of which has allowed our species to reshape the earth for its use. With heat from wood fires, relatively cold climates become habitable. Inedible grains were changed into a major source of food. Clay could be converted into pottery, serving as useful containers to store goods. People could extract metal from stone, revolutionizing the implements used in agriculture, crafts, and warfare. And builders could make durable construction materials, such as brick, cement, lime, plaster, and tile for housing and storage facilities. Charcoal and wood also provided the heat necessary to evaporate brine from seawater to make salt, to melt potash and sand into glass, to bake grains into bread, and to boil mixtures into useful products such as dyes and soaps. Transportation would have been unthinkable without wood. Until the 19th century, every ship from the Bronze Age coaster to the frigate was built with timber. Alternative materials for shipbuilding, such as bladders and reeds, proved too fragile to bear the weight of much cargo. Every cart, chariot, and wagon was also made primarily of wood. Early steamboats and railroad locomotives in the United States used wood as their fuel. Wooden ships were tied up to piers and wharves made from wood. Carts, chariots, and wagons made of wood crossed wooden bridges. And railroad ties, of course, were wooden. Wood was also used for the beams that propped up mine shafts and formed supports for every type of building. Water wheels and windmills, the major means of mechanical power before electricity was harnessed, were built of wood. The peasant could not farm without wooden tool handles or wood plows. The soldier could not throw his spear or shoot his arrows without their wooden shafts or hold his gun without its wooden stock. What would the archer have done lacking wood for his bow? The brewer, the vintner, without wood for their barrels and casts, or the woolen industry without wood for its looms? Wood was the foundation upon which early societies were built. Perline's early chapters in this book are about early classical civilizations. He discusses Mycenaean Greece, uh, Crete, Cyprus, and the Athenian city-states. And all of these civilizations went through a period of rise and decline, in large part based on their access to wood. And the consequences of having wood were, as I just mentioned, that things could be made, uh, weapons could be made for war, Tools could be made for industry and agriculture, and when wood was scarce, as it often became around the city centers, uh, the civilizations had to go further and further away to get their wood. Now, the consequence of this was, as you can imagine, deforestation, massive deforestation in the hinterlands, which in many cases, in the case of Ephesus, uh, which is along the coast of Turkey, a place that I did have the good fortune to visit in 1999— uh, the entire port, where Ephesus started out as a, as a seaport city, and with the deforestation that occurred upriver from Ephesus, massive siltation occurred along that seaport, and basically Ephesus found itself inland, which was a major problem considering that much of the real estate and economy was developed around uh, this village being this town being a seaport. And with the erosion from the deforestation, that changed dramatically and the city went into a period of decline. Now another interesting thing about this is that these climates in the Mediterranean, they did have fairly cold winters, cold enough to where people would need wood to warm their homes. And as wood became more scarce with the growth of civilization, people really had to focus on conservation. So all types of appropriate, what we would call today green building, uh, passive solar type design, solar chimneys, ways to insulate homes and heat homes using the sun and ways to maintain a comfortable lifestyle without relying so heavily on wood uh, really draws, I think, remarkable parallels to some of the discussion we are having around non-renewable fossil fuels today in our civilization. So it's interesting to note that we are not the only civilization to experience these types of uh, resource scarcities and the threat of collapse and, and the requirement of conservation based around those resource scarcities. Now I'd like to read a passage in John Perlin's book, in the chapter about Rome, and this section of the book is called Wood and the Decline of the Roman Empire. Rome financed its growth largely with the silver extracted from Spanish ore. Production increased considerably during the end of the Republic and the first years of the Empire, but this was accomplished only by great expense to the Iberian woodlands, since the silver smelting furnaces consumed more than 500 million trees during the 400 years of operation. Woodsmen had to deforest a little over 7,000 square miles to provide fuel for the furnaces. It is therefore not surprising that a modern commentator described ancient silver mining regions such as the one in Spain as monstrous parasites that gobbled up vast quantities of forests. Near the end of the period of peak production, the need to sustain high output so strained the area's fuel supplies that it merited intervention by the Roman state. Under the reign of the emperor Vespasian, the Roman government included an edict directed to all mining areas of southwestern Spain, an order prohibiting the sale of burnable wood by those who ran the bathhouses in the region. To produce enough silver to support the habits of a succession of rulers who spent as extravagantly as Caligula and Nero, a time had to come when the tree supply in Spain would dwindle and production in silver would decline accordingly conservation laws could only temporarily stave off wood shortages when silver was spent so wastefully. Around the end of the 2nd century AD, the inevitable occurred. Silver production declined. Further output was limited not by the supply of ore, which remained abundant, but by the accessibility of fuel. The decline in silver production offered later emperors two choices, cut expenditures or find alternative financing. They unanimously chose the latter, but differed in methodology. The emperor Commodus stretched silver money by adding base metal, which would comprise 30% of the coin. He also went on a killing spree, enraged that the empire's revenues could not meet his expenditures. When he finally calmed down, he decided to auction off whatever he could, offering provinces and administrative offices to the highest bidder. Septimus Severus, who ruled a few years after Commodus, added 20% more alloy to the silver coinage, thus reducing the silver content to a mere 50%. Because Roman money was now so badly debased, Severus instituted the requisitioning of commodities rather than collecting worthless currency through taxation. Further debasements forced the government to search for creative ways of staying afloat. Most of the methods chosen circumscribed the freedom of its citizens. Providing the government with the provisions it needed became compulsory. The government also established guilds, expecting them to produce according to obligations it set, but rewarding members with monopolies in their respective trades. By the end of the 3rd century AD, Rome's currency had lost 98% of its silver content, and the public placed as little value on it as it did the government. People increasingly took to trading in commodities and services, so that by the first part of the 4th century AD, barter and payment with goods became institutionalized. The fuel situation in Rome during the 3rd and 4th centuries AD was equally distressing. Citizens resorted to burning anything that would bring forth heat—twigs, shoots, stumps, roots of vines, pine cones, and wood left over from construction sites. To keep the Roman people from becoming too anxious over the declining economy and the constant specter of starvation, the rulers of Rome had to constantly find ways to entertain the population. The emperor Probus provided Rome with the greatest wild beast hunt that it had ever known. Since forests no longer grew near Rome, Probus ordered his legions to uproot giant trees and transport them to the Eternal City. He then charged them with planting the trees in the Roman circus, which soon resembled a German forest where thousands of wild animals, ostriches, stags, ibexes, and sheep, were let loose for the Romans to hunt and kill. The rise and decline of fuel supplies in Rome closely paralleled the fortunes of the empire itself. Well, moving forward in history, uh, John Perlin talks extensively about England from its early days as a feudal monarchical society. In the 16th century. And during that time, England was considered economically and and industrially relatively backwards. The British monarchy feared invasion from some of the other European powers. And as a result of that fear, the British crown decided to build their own armaments manufacturing industry within England itself. The arms of the day were large iron cannons, were one of the most important armaments of the day. And those large iron cannons obviously re- required uh, iron forges and furnaces and quite a substantial amount of wood to run those furnaces. So Henry Eighth made a decree that the country would become self-sufficient in the productions of munitions. And the iron masters, who were entrepreneurs, saw this as a great opportunity, and they seized on that. By 1549, 53 iron forges and furnaces were operating in Sussex, according to John Perlin. And that brought England to the forefront of the international arms race. And this really laid the foundation for um, British imperialism many years later. Now the establishment of these iron furnaces and forges through the English countryside brought the crown at loggerheads with the peasants because it was so destructive of the forests around it. People started to realize, it it didn't take long for people to realize, that the presence of these forges in their communities absolutely decimated the forest And the peasants depended on the wood to bake their bread and to heat their homes and to run uh, cottage industries. So the people of the landscape in England were distressed to see this arms race occurring in their own backyard because of the direct consequences it had on their quality of life and their well-being. And so somewhat predictably within the aristocratic structure of English, English society at the time, Uh, The industrial interests won out over the interests of the working people, and peasant rebellions over wood supplies became a common feature in English life during this period. Under the reign of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, the move towards self-sufficiency grew even more, and the crown felt it necessary that England be self-sufficient in a number of different areas— including copper smelting, salt, uh, the production of glass, the the construction of wooden ships for commerce and for warfare. And naturally, all these things, once again, required large quantities of wood for the crown to actually be able to achieve the self-sufficiency in all these different areas of industry. Now, this scarcity had the effect of rising prices. In the period between 1570 and 1594 in England, there are historical documents that show a 400% increase in the price of wood. And now that affected industry, but obviously it really affected commoners because commoners had obviously a lot less access to capital and currency for them to be able to buy the wood. So effectively what was happening was that people who needed wood for their everyday uses were getting priced out of the marketplace for industry. Now this also created tensions between the Navy and industry because industry, run as it was by private uh, interests and the Navy as part of the crown were at loggerheads over the use of the wood And the Navy obviously wanted the wood to build ships, but wood was becoming more and more scarce, and industry continued to have an insatiable appetite for wood for all the things that, again, I have already mentioned. Oftentimes during this period, between the 1500s and the mid-1600s in England, there was quite a conflict going on between the Parliament and the King and the Crown, And that power struggle oftentimes centered around wood. The king, uh, having extravagant needs, as we often are familiar with reading about during this period in European history, and as, as we already heard about in the case of the Roman emperors, would sell off the English woodlands and put money into the purse of the crown via that means. But of course, that was not a sustainable way of doing so, And there was a lot of tension between the navy and the parliament and the peasants and the crown during this period. Now, around this time, by the late 1600s, England began to develop what we would more recognize as a more industrialized economy. Fuel sources continuing to be scarce the English economy really had to make a transition from wood to coal and some developments in technology allowed them to do so so that they could actually they actually reach the point where they could smelt iron using coal, something that had not been possible before. And that really made quite a sea change in English industry, being able to move to that alternative fuel. However, as we are also well familiar with today, moving towards using coal as a primary source of fuel uh, really created some pollution problems for people in the area. So it was an unforeseen consequence of the scarcity of wood. Now the discovery of the New World by uh, Europeans during this time was really quite a fortuitous discovery because the supplies of wood throughout Europe were becoming increasingly, increasingly depleted and as Europeans expanded into these areas where industry was not common among the populations there, uh, and the demand for wood was much reduced compared to what you would have seen in Europe at the time, it was very agreeable to them because they could exploit these enormous wood resources, but the pattern remained the same. Europeans would arrive uh, someplace like, for example, in the Canary Islands, and in short order, they would completely destroy the forests in that area, and they would be looking to move on to find another source of wood to feed their insatiable appetite. With the colonization of New England by the British Crown, the British secured for themselves one of the most important strategic resources of the time and that was wood and not any kind of wood not just wood for fuel which was in great demand as the booming sugar industry took off in the caribbean but really what they needed one of one of the primary strategic assets that they needed was straight masts for building naval ships that the English Empire was so dependent on and so New England it turns out with the beautiful white pines and some of the other species in the area uh, was perfectly suited for providing the crown with the mastheads that it needed for its navy now in the early days of the relationship between the crown and the colonies in North America and uh, specifically New England the relationship was reciprocal enough to where the colonists would accept some of the onerous taxes and the continued extraction of the wood resources from the area. But as time went by uh, and as the colonies were able to stand more on their own two feet, the colonists started to become a little bit miffed, so to speak, at the interference of the English Crown in their day-to-day life as England passed all sorts of laws and regulations and taxation policies to maximize their access and benefit from the forests of North America. Uh, And by the way, anybody who is familiar with the forests in the eastern United States knows that there is a paucity of white pines, especially large white pines, in the forests of the eastern United States, specifically for this reason, because they were so highly valued as masts for ships. But... The colonists, over time, uh, started to act, to engage in acts of civil disobedience as the English crown really tried to tighten its grip on its access to the forests of North America. And that was one of the points of contention uh, from the perspective of the people who were involved in the American Revolution and in that generation of Americans in that they felt they had the right to do what they wanted to do on their lands and had a strong belief in the rights of private property owners. One of the things that the colonists were doing was selling some of their timber to the, to the Spanish and the French who the English at that time viewed as rival powers. And people in the English government were not all that, uh, enamored of the idea of American American colonists, which was ostensibly their colony sending wood to their, uh, rivals. Now, as England was defeated in the Revolutionary War and the United States became a country in its own right, we can recall in our popular imagination uh, Mark Twain and his descriptions of life on the Mississippi and the steamboats that moved up and down the Mississippi. And John Perline says, great quantities of wood were needed for fuel for the steamboats. The large steamboat Eclipse, for example, had an array of 15 boilers. To keep them heated required wood by the carload. When steamboats first appeared on the river, there was no organized system for provisioning them with fuel. Eventually, thousands of wood yards were set up along the banks of every navigable river simply to provide steamers with fuel. Backwoodsmen brought the timber they had to cut these depots and hacked them into proper size for the ship's furnaces. To the civilized eye, many of these men had the appearance of being half horse, half alligator, all wild originals to a man. At night, the owners of these woodlots kept gigantic fires blazing so those on board the boats could see the yards and fuel up. Stopping every two hours or so to take on fuel and then waiting several hours more for it to be loaded on board wasted many precious hours. To eliminate such delays, Flatboats piled with wood waited in the middle of the river for a steamer to approach. If the steamer needed fuel, its crews lashed the flatboats to theirs, and as they pushed upriver, the logs were thrown aboard. Now, in the 70-year period between 1810 and 1880, the forests of North America, particularly east of the Mississippi, had been pretty much all but decimated. The clearing of forests for agricultural purposes was a very common practice, but also, as I mentioned, uh, wood was a very important source for industry for all sorts of things. An author, One of the things that an author, Charles Sargent, wrote uh, after looking at a census from the period 1810 to 1880 was this. The American people must learn that a forest, whatever its extent and resources, can be exhausted in a surprisingly short space of time through total disregard in its treatment. And that was, at that time, very evident in the American landscape. The forests had, as I said, been decimated. Now, this was a period right before uh, the real massive industrialization that we associate with our 20th century And now our 21st century got underway, and this was right around the time when people started to really take a serious look at other fuels, particularly petroleum, coal, and then probably later on natural gas, and replaced the use of wood with fossil fuels. So we had about a billion people in the world at that time around the turn of the around the start of the 20th century, and the world's forests were largely decimated. Now, in North America, the forests have recovered largely because, as what we've seen throughout history, is these civilizations have reached the limits to growth through largely peak wood, which was access to fuel and construction materials, the primary fuel and construction materials throughout most of human history. When at the turn of the century, people began to tap into non-renewable fossil fuel resources. They overcame that limit to growth that I am calling Peak Wood that we have seen in the case of the Roman Empire, the um, Hellenistic civilizations in the Mediterranean, the English Empire, and also the American Empire. However, the American Empire was able to sidestep The peak wood phenomenon by tapping into non-renewable fossil fuel resources, which obviously resulted in this tremendous technological explosion, which we are still living through in this day and age. However, if peak oil is a reality, and there's no reason to assume that it's not based on uh, a lot of the evidence and analysis that have been done around it and based on the fact that no viable technological alternative has been presented or really is on on the near horizon, then we really need to reassess our relationship to wood. It is very likely that wood will be restored to its rightful place if not as the primary fuel source, as a very important fuel source in our economies and our civilization in the future and perhaps in the very near future. Now, it is also important to remember that one of the most important fuel sources in the world today remains fuel wood, so much so that 2.6 billion people in the world today still rely on wood as their primary source of fuel. Uh, We did some research in a small province in Bolivia called Ayopaya a couple of years ago, one of the results of this research was that just within this province, the people were using 5 million loads of wood per year. Now, a load of wood is about what one person one person can carry on their back uh, in a single trip. And the families are using about 118 loads of wood per year. And that's probably a pretty standard amount of wood Uh, that a household consumes in a developing country. Now, how that translates into, you know, biomass numbers, I have not done any calculations on that, and it varies from one region to the next. But 118 loads of wood per family per year without any other uh, forestry-related activities going on, specifically to regenerate those forests, and the deforestation rates in the Third World particularly remain staggering. And as we perhaps have to transition to using wood, even in the first world, or perhaps use more wood more frequently in some of the third world countries, if and when uh, non-renewable fossil fuels become more scarce and hence more expensive, then those deforestation rates will once again increase more. So Wood is a critical issue, and we all need to be thinking about issues around wood and forest use, conservation, and how wood provides us with so many different useful materials and services in our society and our culture today. That is all I have for you today for this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this discussion of wood and the role of forests in history. And I have been thinking that perhaps a place to get some lively discussion going is on the comment thread for the Innovations podcast. So if you visit our webpage, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, and you will see there is a link to a comment thread for each of the postings uh, of each particular podcast, I would appreciate it if you have something that you want to say instead of sending it to me in an email, unless you have something that uh, you want me to address directly, then please do so in the comment thread for the particular podcast that you want to comment upon. We are also on Twitter, twitter.com agronovations, and I am on Facebook. Uh, my name is Frank Aragona, so if you want to go to Facebook and find me on Facebook, I encourage you to do that as well. I conclude by reminding you that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons attribution share alike license. So, to learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. Until next time, saludos.